0: The digital divide remains an issue in schools across the Kansas and Missouri area. Today, we'll talk with two great reporters about that problem, and we'll talk about how schools have opened. I'm Dave Helling with the STARS editorial board. You are on Deep Background. greetings, everyone. You're on Deep Background for the Ides of September, September 15th, 2020, in a year that none of us will ever forget, right, guys? That's right. (laughs) As we go down in the history books, Dave Helling with the Stars Editorial Board, Derek Donovan. Of course, uh, my colleague and friend at the Editorial Board joins me as co-host. And then two great reporters, Ray Rose-Williams from the Star and Kevin Hardy from the Star as well. Guys, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks
0: for having us. We want to talk a little bit with Marae and Kevin about uh, the story uh, recently published uh, and other stories that have been published about the digital divide with uh, education in our region. Uh, And I'm interested in this subject a lot. In fact, I wrote about it back in when the schools were first shut down in the spring because it, it just seemed like at the time and we'll start with you kevin it seemed like at the time the assumption was well everybody has a computer everybody has digital access this switch over from in-person learning to home learning will be as simple as pie, and it didn't turn out to be that
2: way yeah that's right dave i mean i think a lot of people understand the difficulties with internet connections in rural parts of kansas missouri but um, you know, it's also happening right here in, in urban neighborhoods. It's happening in Johnson County, suburban neighborhoods. But, you know, the access, even for as ubiquitous as Internet feels nowadays,
0: not everyone has that access at home in particular. Yeah, not only is that a problem, Array, but people don't have the computers they need. I mean, you need hardware to go with high-speed Internet. I mean, it just seems like, no one was ready for this back in the spring, and here we are in the fall, and there's still huge, unacceptable gaps in how we reach students. Is that right?
1: Yes, it is. I mean, in the spring when this happened, you're right. Everybody was sort of caught caught up guard, and so they were scrambling, trying to get, you know, the hardware to the students, but like Kevin said, um, even after they got hardware to students, and Um, what they didn't realize was just how uh, scattered and broken the access, accessibility is, you know, and it didn't matter. It had nothing to do or little to do with your economic status. I mean, it didn't matter whether you were poor. I mean, they were figuring that there would be poor kids without, but um, even middle class and upper middle class, and when you start talking about everybody's now, working from home and um the demand is heavy and there were broke there were just broken spots all over the metro area where they either didn't have any access or they had scattered access you know sometimes you do sometimes it's working sometimes it's not and it's just been a huge problem for kids trying to get their education
0: remotely. Why is that, Kevin? Why, why Is it money? Is it lack of planning? Is it like lack of equipment? Is it lack of commitment to getting this done? Or what, what, what has held back our progress?
2: It's really all of the above. I mean, you have, in some of these outlying communities, um, places like Spring Hill and DeSoto and Gardner, places that are in Johnson County and ostensibly you know, growing and, and blossoming. Those communities still have a big struggle with their own providers trying to get them to expand because the cost to, to expand fiber is so high nowadays that you really have to have a critical mass to make that work. And then in, in the inner city, you have more just families who are struggling through the pandemic layoffs and furloughs. And, you know, some folks we talked to said that internet is a really easy bill to cut out because people have cell phones. they have other ways of accessing you know the the web without the same reliability as maybe a cable cord at home.
0: we wasn't and Kevin, I'll start with you and then go to Murray. wasn't Google's uh, fiber supposed to solve this problem? I think we all had the assumption that Google Fiber would come in. the whole city would be wired. And this would not be a You're shaking your head. Yeah, go but, but Google Fiverr is not everywhere. I mean, they were maybe
1: they, they came in with that notion. But I mean, I'm in independence currently and we don't have Google Fiverr out here. So, I mean, it's just, it is it not, it's not as expansive as people thought it was going to be. Yeah. And so, so relying
0: on relying on Google was probably not a good strategy, right? Yeah. That, well, we'll just let Google Fiber build everything out and we can do this right. going forward. So is it, but, so how do you solve that though, Kevin? Is it money? Is it, I mean, what, uh, again, what, what, uh, it seems like it's almost a house to house, hand to hand combat kind of thing.
2: Right. I mean, you can go out into, you know, parts of Kansas and Missouri and lots of small communities are facing the same thing where they just can't get anyone to invest because they're never going to make that money back on, you know, monthly bills. It's just
0: like people, compare it to rural electrification. It was the same exact challenge, which is the final mile is so expensive in sparsely populated areas and, and, and there's a reluctance to invest there.
2: And one of the problems that you have is that it's not necessarily a binary, yes, you have it or no, you don't. Lots of these places have old telephone networks and they're running really sluggish internet off those telephone networks. So it's not as though they have nothing, but it's not reliable or high speed enough, you know, for kids to be on Zoom all day or for parents to work from home. So even in some of those communities that that are struggling, they have something, but it's not Google Fiber type quality.
0: Yeah. Who who wants to fix this? Who's demanding? Is there anyone out there saying, hey, if we're going to do it this way, we're going to have to make sure that every student has equal access to uh, quality Internet?
1: I, I think, think there I think they're waiting for um, <laughs> the same thing everybody else is waiting for. It's like, okay, this is temporary and can we hold on and make it through and deal with it later? Um, and I, I, I think that that's part of what's happening. Um, you know they they're just expect it to be temporary and then and then we'll deal with that later yeah. down the
0: road. It, 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 that all made sense, Kevin again in the spring, but by the fall, And I know a lot of school, and we're going to talk about this in a minute, but districts are going back and in-person is coming back. But by and large, it's arguable that you had three months to plan for this. Maybe it takes more than three months to fix these problems. And again, maybe it's too complicated to do sort of a, a, you know, a mass wiring of a particular community or whatever.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think the way that a lot of districts pivoted was you know by buying more computers and iPads and mobile hotspots like that—that's sort of the interim measure that a lot of those folks that are doing virtual learning took um, because they—they I don't the, the reality is a school system can't fix the entire community's you know internet problems they don't right. have the capacity to do that but at the same time they're trying to keep kids out of the school building for their own safety and the safety of the community. And what it's really done is kind of ironically brought some of these kids back together. I mean, we're seeing libraries and churches and YMCA's are kind of gathering spots, excuse me, gathering spots right now where folks are going to access the Internet, which is just so ironic. That,
0: yeah, I mean, in essence, they're putting a classroom together so you don't have to go to a classroom, which is right. Pretty- I mean,
2: obviously, it's not the same scale, but it's like yeah. that's the, least, the length that people have to take to get a reliable connection.
3: It's a really interesting question about when people are going to say that Internet access is a utility. You know, Dave made the comparison to rural electrification, and that's a debate that's worth having. I don't think there's any clear answer to it.
0: I think that's true, too. But there's another complication, Murray, we'll go to you in in this whole discussion. And that is, is remote learning, digital learning, really the answer to the future? Is it worth the investment, if if it's just a temporary problem and everyone will be going back to school, which we all assume at some point, then maybe it's not worth spending hundreds of millions of dollars to bring everybody up to speed. Do we have a sense uh, that this way of teaching works?
1: I think that when we when this first happened in March, you know, you heard um educators around the country cheering and saying, Yay, this is where we're gonna go, this is our future. Exactly. But I think that once they've gotten into it, there are so many other flintering problems that have arisen from this that cannot be fixed with
0: remote learning. And, and nobody anticipated those, right? Like what if you have three kids in the house? What if Absolutely. mom and dad both work? What if you're computer right. is old. What? And you get into competitive situations. Some kids have good computers, some don't. Teachers have to learn to teach in a different way. I mean, I do think you're right, Murray. We used to think this, boy, this is the future. And right. we're realizing it's more complicated than that.
1: Yes. and I, But I also think that the good thing is that what has happened with COVID in this remote learning, remote teaching is some of the district's recognize that these are problems that have existed all along that they didn't recognize for example you know you have a school district where you have some kids who have great access and some kids who don't they didn't even realize the disparity before and but it was showing up in the academic output of students in other words if one student goes home to do a project and he has great access and he can get online and do all these wonderful things and then turn in this amazing project another student does not have that same access they are maybe equally as bright but they don't have the tools and they're so they come out you know with a lower grade or they're falling behind not because of their inability to learn or to to comprehend the information but because of the lack of access and a lot of school districts and a lot of schools did not realize the how how the significance of what was happening until COVID until they started trying to do remote learning. And now they see it. So they can try to remedy some of those kinds of things. So that's a good
0: thing. Actually. So, 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 so that Kevin seems to suggest that a- as this process goes forward, we have to a- address the idea of a lack of access, a lack of hardware, but also how do we teach online? How do we do it well? how do kids become engaged and and you know you can read people writing things that suggest the kids going to school now are losing you know just as a group losing ground because the teaching isn't as good and they're not paying as much attention and and they're distracted and there are other things and so this whole idea that digital education is the 21st century's big development seems under some pressure
2: yeah i think that's You know, right? We've we've heard from so many employers about sort of their surprise and and their um, you you know pleasantly surprised by how much productivity folks are doing at home and how much work is still getting done at home. And I think from you know kindergarten through college, on the school side, it's a entirely different story and, and questions about how much is really getting done or how much is sticking. I think those are all really valid questions and, you know, something that researchers are probably going to be studying for years to come. Yeah,
0: And we need to fix if we're going to go forward. And Murray, the other you know, part of this is, uh, you know, understanding how kids are reacting to all of this, because socialization is part of education, too. What, yes. Where you fit into a room next to a buddy or a friend or, you know, and you learn how to solve problems without fights. And and all of that is also difficult in a digital environment.
1: Absolutely. Because before uh, COVID, you know, school, they, they were moving towards a direction of what they call project based learning. Which requires you to work together in groups and problem solve and conflict conflict resolution in a group to get a project um, accomplished. That kind of is like on hold now with um, remote learning. They were also moving towards this thing that they call um, a student student led learning, where the 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 student directs within a certain Theme where the, how the education is going to go in the classroom and the teachers just a facilitator. And they were moving towards that. And that too has been put on hold. So there are a lot, they're sort of having to pivot and change directions um, on so many different things. And they're having to do it so quickly that, I mean, I really feel for school districts and educators right now, they are in a, in a, in a pickle and trying to figure this all out. And they haven't had a lot of time, three months, to do all of that, uh, to deal with
0: the yeah. access. And- I think that's exactly right. We're going to take a break here. The other thing is you have to feel a little sympathy for parents. Yes. You have to right. be for the kids, too, you know, particularly in the middle school to high school range huh. where they're old enough to sort of know this is not normal, and uh, the difficulties involved there. Okay, let's take a break. We'll come back, we'll talk about how schools open this year with our two great guests, Kevin Hardy and Marae Rose Williams, and of course, my co-host, Derek Donovan. I'm Dave Helling, you're on Deep Background.
3: Hey there, this is Derek Donovan of the Kansas City Star Editorial Board, and we hope you're enjoying the podcast. If you like what you hear, help us support this podcast and the journalism that reporters at The Star do every day by subscribing. There's an easy way for you to do it. Head to kansascity.com slash background. You'll even get a special discount just for being a deep background listener. By subscribing at that URL, you will get three months of unlimited digital access to The Star for $1.99 total. That's right, you get access to KansasCity.com, the e-edition of the newspaper, our mobile apps, and more for three whole months, and it only costs you $1.99. That's a pretty sweet deal. Plus, you will be supporting journalism that makes a difference in Kansas City. So, go grab your computer or mobile device and head to KansasCity.com slash background, and hey, Thanks for listening.
0: Okay, we're back, Dave Helling with the STARS editorial board, Derek Donovan, also with that illustrious organization, <laughs> my co-host. Great to have Derek with us as always. Kevin Hardy and Marae Rose Williams talking about the reopening of schools and the digital challenges that schools and educators are facing. Marae, uh, we'll start with you. How, how, how has the opening gone, reopening gone? Well, we're in the middle of September, Classes are basically open almost everywhere, although there is a sort of a mix of remote learning, some in-person, some at remote. It seems like it's a real mishmash, but we haven't, we haven't heard a lot of real overwhelming complaints yet, have we? Nor have we heard, by the way, a lot of COVID cases in the schools. No, we haven't heard a, a lot
1: of, of complaints, and you, but you do get mixed reviews, right? So, you know, there are some teachers who have really embraced this and are doing a fantastic job and have no fear and are trying different things. And the students will, as always, what you give them, they will tend to rise to that. I mean, a lot of the complaints that you're getting really are coming not from the the teachers and the students, but from the parents yes. who are having, who are being challenged um, in ways they've never been challenged before to try to deal with the school reopening. And most of them are really screaming for just get the kids back to school, you know, get them in the classroom, um, because that's what they know. And it's it's less of a uh, demand on them as a parent,
0: right? Right. And, and some parents <laughs> have to work outside of the home. And so, The school is really, in essence, a place for the kids to be all day, Kevin. And you're the business reporter, a business reporter. Uh, My guess is that businesses are kind of hoping schools get back to normal so that their employees can focus again. Is that, you have a sense of that at all?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think that so many of these businesses have been dealing with for months now their employees being somewhat, um, uh, you know, preoccupied with kids at home and family at home. So, um, I know that that's really important for them to get their workforce back, whether it's remote, you know, at home or in the office. But, you know, we've also you, we've heard from lots of parents that even when schools are virtual, they're sending their kids to their grandparents' house or to daycare or childcare because they have to get their own work done or they work at a hospital or they work 10 hours a day at their computer. Exactly. So um, there, it's just complications all around for every party involved,
0: it seems like. Yeah. And then, Murray, the other thing that surprises, has surprised me this fall is <laughs> how much athletics is driving this conversation. Right. Absolutely. I mean, I, you know, in almost every district, the parents are protesting not to get classes going, but to get football going or, right. or golf or gymnastics or whatever. We had a lawsuit filed the other day by parents who want to attend a game, not just have their kids play, but actually want to be in the stands. Uh, should we be surprised at that that that, uh, that sports is i mean obviously it's a passion for a lot of people but it's just really surprised me that that's been the driving uh, energy in a lot of these districts
1: well it's more than passion
0: <clears throat> i mean it
1: is passion for a lot of people but for like middle and high school students particularly high school students it is like their future So, I mean, consider the fact that for some of these parents, they've been paying for their kid to belong to sports leagues since the child is five years old. And that child has put a lot of time and energy and effort into being the best that they can on the field. And then they get to their junior year of high school when all the difference is going to be made, you know, and suddenly – there there's a question of whether they get to play and whether they get to train. And so parents are like, oh my gosh, this kid is 17 years old and for the last decade that's all they ever did. And now suddenly that's gonna go away. And we're looking for it to be a scholarship to go to some major university. And it's so so it's more than just passion for them. It is um you know it's they're thinking about the child's future. So I do understand that. I don't get the idea I don't understand the whole let's sue the school district so we can bring auntie and grandma to the football game too. I don't I don't get that. But I do understand why sports is particularly the major sports, you know, football, baseball, tennis, those kinds of things are
0: um are really important to some of these students.
1: And for some of them that's what keeps them in school.
0: Yes. Uh, Kevin, do you sense this as well and Let me just throw out this sort of observation, which is that, you know, athletics are important, but no no district is required to have a football team. I mean, it is an extracurricular activity, the same as band or speech or debate or whatever. And the idea that you would sue to insist that a district offer golf, you know, seems a bit incongruous. Sure.
2: But I, I think like Murray is saying, it, it's more than, you know, sports are so cultural to us at this point, And you just look at the Chiefs and the Royals and how excited everyone was to have those sports come back. And, you know, maybe if nothing else, it's a, it's a distraction and something to focus on that's positive for folks. But um, it does, it is interesting to see the how much um, in the school context sports are are really driving the conversation for a lot of these. Right, and another,
0: way of saying, another way of saying that is, you know, we were handing out, you know, accolades to the teachers and the parents and everybody else. But you have to feel a little sorry for administrators who are caught also in a rock in a hard place between this push from parents to play or to open up the schools and the chance of getting COVID. I mean, Marie, you know this. People, districts have been cutting nurses out of the budget for decades as right. one of the places to save money. So you have some buildings, maybe a majority of buildings in most districts, with no nurse inside, literally. Right. And, and, and so how do you take everyone's temperature? How do you send a kid home who's got a cough? I mean, that, you know, juxtapose that against, hey, we need to play football. It becomes very difficult.
1: Right. And and, and, that, and that's what that's at the crux here is that these school districts, they I mean, each parent, they're looking at their own agenda, their own child and what they think is best for their own child. Um, but the district has to make decisions that are going to impact an entire district from like pre-K all the way up through high school. So they're looking at it, uh, have to look at a much broader spectrum of of issues than than these individual parents. And so really ultimately in the end, the district has to basically tune out the loud voices of those parents who are screaming about sports because not every kid plays a sport and they've got to think about all of the students, all of the staff, all of the teachers. Um, So there's,
0: you know, it's very selfish for parents yeah, to Right, be that. and then on top of that, Kevin, you you just have to overlay politics. Uh, you know, and people saying, "Hey, there is no COVID." You know, it's it's True. a root, it's a mistake, and masks are ridiculous. And 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 pushback from the other side saying, "No, everyone should be in a mask and and you know, close schools and close the society." Uh, it, you know, when they write books about this uh, period. It seems to me like education will be one of the main chapters of what what we've been talking about.
2: Sure, and th- I mean there just is no there's there's no easier right decision. It's a nightmare scenario, you know, of a COVID outbreak in a school versus all the complications of sending kids home where they may not get meals and they may not have internet and they may lose out on education and social socialization. So it's really just not. There's no real easy win for. Those school systems.
0: About out of time, but let's wrap up this conversation. Marae, what's your best guess where we'll be at Christmas time, first of the year? I mean, are we start? We open, we close. We open, we close. Or, or you know, you see a lot of districts saying, "Okay, we're going to start in person for the elementary kids first of October, and then maybe try and expand it." Um, you know, what's your best guess of how that goes forward, particularly? keeping in mind teachers who, you know, have their own concerns about COVID. uh, Will we be back to a semblance of normal by the end of the year or not?
1: I don't know that we'll ever get
0: yeah, back. I need a health reporter to answer
1: that. <laughs> I don't know that we'll ever get back to normal. I mean, maybe some new normal. But I do think that K-12 education will fare better than um, college in terms of where they will be. And I do think that the school districts will be ready to make some real serious attempts at 100 percent full in-person classes. How long that will last, you know, um it would be hard to say. But I do think that we they will be on the road to getting back to a full in-person classes by December. And that's yeah. just, of course, a, yes,
0: right? a guess, right? Because, Kevin, as I told somebody the other day, um, the ultimate answer to that question and all these questions is whether there's still a danger from the coronavirus. Right. I mean, because if somebody was saying, oh, the economy is tanked because of all the COVID restrictions. And I said, no, it's tanked because of COVID, you know, <laughs> right. people don't want to go to the restaurant. They don't want to go to the movies. Even if you said tomorrow, we're opening schools, we're opening the malls, but everybody go back to normal, people won't do it unless they think they're safe. And that maybe is the point that, you know, is unanswerable by the end of the year. Right.
2: that's uh, Yeah, I think to that, that. Yeah, this whole pandemic has taught us that uh, – <laughs> Predicting the future is just really a, fo- a fool's errand at this point. So.
0: Right. I don't think any of us thought we'd be doing a podcast on <laughs> remote learning in the middle of September back in March and April. I think we all thought it would go by quickly. Well, thank you so much uh, to our two reporters today for your insights. It's such an interesting question. Schools and education, K-12 particularly, is such an integral part of everything we do in this country, public and private, everywhere. Uh, in our community. And these questions indeed are very, very, very difficult to answer and yet so important. I mean, you can't just blow it off. You've got to know know which direction you want to go. Kevin Hardy and Marae Rose Williams, both with the Kansas City Star. Thanks so much for joining us and thanks for your reporting on this issue. And, and we'll, we'll stay with it, of course. And Derek, as always, thank you for your help uh, putting the podcast together and joining us for today's Discussion about education in the Kansas City area. I'm Dave Helling with the Stars Editorial Board. You have been on Deep Background.